0: Welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. I'm Tyler Green. This week, Trevor Paglin. This weekend, the Museum of Contemporary Art San Diego is opening Trevor Paglin Sites Unseen, a mid-career survey. Paglin's work examines the nexus of power, systems, state intelligence, and the military, usually in an effort to make the invisible visible. Among the institutions that have devoted exhibitions to Paglin's art are the Vienna Secession and the Kunstverein in Frankfurt. He's written five books, and he's a MacArthur Genius Fellowship recipient. Paglin is at MCASD's downtown location through June 2nd. It was curated by John Jacob and organized by the Smithsonian American Art Museum, which published the show's terrific catalog. Amazon offers it for 37 bucks. On the second segment, Kimball Art Museum curator Nancy Edwards discusses The Lure of Dresden, Belotto at the Court of Saxony. The exhibition features one-time Canaletto studio hand Bernardo Belotto's extraordinary, broad, yet detailed view paintings of Dresden, where he was the court painter from roughly 1748 to 58, and its environs the exhibition is on view in fort worth through april 28th the excellent and extremely readable catalog is available from amazon for 33 dollars finally if you haven't given us a five-star rating and a review on itunes or in whatever podcatcher you use please do really really helps us attract new audiences also if you use pandora or spotify please know that we're among their podcast listings too on to the show trevor paglin after the break On February 28th at the Getty Center, hear Spelman College President Mary Schmidt Campbell discuss her biography of the late Romare Bearden, a renowned 20th-century African-American artist whose work explores universal themes through the celebration of African-American culture. A book signing follows this free talk. Learn more at getty.edu slash 360. The Nasher Museum of Art at Duke University in Durham, North Carolina presents Pop America, 1965-1975, the first exhibition to present a hemispheric vision of pop art. Visitors who know and love pop art for its engaging imagery will rediscover pop as a verb, a strategy for communicating powerful content throughout the Americas. The exhibition shows how Latin American and Latino and Latina artists made a significant contribution to this artistic period. Pop America features nearly 100 works by a network of Latino and Latina and Latin American pop artists connecting Argentina, Brazil, Chile, Colombia, Cuba, Mexico, Peru, Puerto Rico and the United States. Pop America is the culmination of groundbreaking research by guest curator and Duke professor Esther Gabara. The first ever Sotheby's prize was awarded to Pop America last year. On view February 21st through July 21st at the Nasher Museum. Visit nasher.duke.edu. The Hammer Museum in Los Angeles presents Alan Ruppersberg. Intellectual Property, 1968 to 2018. This major retrospective offers a chance to experience the pioneering artist's work in unprecedented breadth and depth. Ruppersburg's first comprehensive U.S. survey in over 30 years, Intellectual Property includes more than 120 works made over the past 50 years, from early assemblage sculptures and photo works combining text and image to drawings and collages. Recent immersive installations are shown alongside Ruppersburg's groundbreaking environments, Al's Cafe and Al's Grand Hotel, participatory projects that help put L.A. on the map as a center for conceptual art. On view February 10th through May 12th at the Hammer. Details at hammer.ucla.edu. Hammer Museum. Free for good. And we're back. Trevor Paglin, welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast.
1: Thank you so much for having me. It's great to be here.
0: I'd like to go back to kind of the very beginning of, of your, your practice, to pictures, at least your mature practice, pictures you made that update the pictures of Timothy O'Sullivan, pictures that you made where he made them, that refer to his pictures, but that aren't uh, re-photography. You're adding to O'Sullivan's places, not necessarily his compositions, places to add your own interests in making the modern techno-military state visible. Were those O'Sullivans a kind of pictorial starting place art historically, or were you more interested in them as a kind of early intrusion of the American mechanisms of state into the inner reaches of the American continent?
1: Yeah, it would definitely much more the latter. So for me, looking at the photography, like Western photography in general, like, Particularly, again, O'Sullivan, Moybridge um, was really important there, as well. Looking at the ways in which space is, on one hand, being conceived of and being imaged, but also that relationship between between a kind of colonialism and image making, you know, particularly in the West, and of course that the ways in which those photographers were attached to military survey apparatuses, you know, on those surveys, basically. And so to me, it's a, it's a kind of conceptual jumping off point. And the question then becomes, what about that moment and what about that project rhymes today? You know, what is that project today? And so by going to some of those landscapes and, and photographing them again, I, I think about it, I think about when you're making art, that you're having multiple different kinds of conversations on different axes. One conversation, of course, you're having is with, you know, all the people that are alive today. But the other conversation that you're having is with your ancestors, basically. And thinking about what did a particular place look like at a particular time and how does that look now? And how do we learn something about the present by showing the different ways of seeing that develop historically. And of course those ways of seeing are completely bound up with forms of power and technology, what what have you. I guess that that, that for me is, is the project. You know, if we go and look at Pyramid Lake, you know, what does that look like now? What, what if we go to Shoshone Falls, what, what does that look like now? You know, what if we go to Yosemite, what does that look like now? And so that's really where that comes from. And by the way I've, I've revisited those kinds of landscapes over multiple different bodies of work actually you know i've photographed them with you know reconnaissance satellites but more recently i just did an image that is actually really close to a refotography piece of the o'sullivan's uh, Karnak ridge you know so actually mark Klett. Was really kind enough to tell me where it was, <laughs> and so uh, <laughs> I, I, had, I had spent years looking for that damn thing. You couldn't find it, you know? and then finally broke down. I was like, "Okay, man, can you just give me the GPS coordinates?" You know, and and that that one is done. Then it made, made the image, and it's then processed through software that we actually built in my studio to allow us to see. How images are interpreted by different um, computer vision algorithms. So the the final piece is a you know a big image of of the, of the O'Sullivan's Karnak Ridge, but then seen through some computer vision algorithms that would you would use like in applications like a self-driving car or a guided missile, and that sort of thing. So again, very directly thinking about what was that photographic apparatus of the 19th century, and what what is that now?
0: You know, it's kind of fun beyond the images that Mark Clutt produces in his re-photography projects or or the work that Mark Ruadel does in his, you know, encyclopedic, encyclopedic cataloging of places in the American West named for hell, that, that you know, you have that Mark klut story. And, and and for me, when I was working on a book about Carlton Watkins, I was trying to figure out where Watkins had made a picture and I couldn't figure it out from maps and all that. And I finally dawned on me, why don't I just email Mark and ask him because <laughs> he was there and, so it's interesting how there you know we 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 think of the visual information as being the work but there's also the digital and textual information that that informs multiple fields artworks in many ways. So if if those O'Sullivan pictures were more a conceptual starting point than an art historical starting point.
1: Well, I guess I see them as the same thing basically. So I um, I guess um, like those images to me have a specific art historical meaning, which is, of course, just a historical meaning. At the same time, I, I can't see those things as being entirely distinct from each other.
0: You have spoken of early survey photographers such as O'Sullivan as being, quote, intelligence gatherers, which I think is exactly right, of course. And your work addresses what might be called their successes, their having gotten to somewhere and made visual evidence of that somewhere in a way that was useful to the state or to science or or to another system. Quite often, I mean, going back into the 1830s, those photographers and the surveys to which they were attached failed. So, for example, my favorite example is John C. Fremont, who, you know, takes these famous expeditions across the West that who, when he writes them as books, with his wife Jessie Benton Fremont, really motivate and direct a white nation west or the white part of the nation westward, you know. So Fremont would take daguerreotype making equipment on these surveys, but wouldn't learn how to use it, for example, right, and would just carry it around the west. Your work often addresses successes. Are you interested in, or do you try to build in an address of intelligence gathering failure?
1: Yes and no. In uh, I I guess. What what I'm struggling with a little bit is the concept of failure or success, because I don't think about, you know, whether or not Fremont was able to successfully make photographs of it. That project as a whole, you know, the idea of photography, making images of the West as a part of a kind of colonization, for lack of a better word, that absolutely succeeded, right? And so when i think about success or failure of these kinds of projects and we can ramp that up all the way to the present like with an example like facial recognition or something like that i don't think about whether or not you know the the image worked or the image was successful or you know whether facial recognition is perfectly accurate so much as thinking about what forms of power applied in particular places are being uh, institutionalized through these kinds of practices and how does that change you know our political climate, social climate, how does that basically sculpt society? And so so I'm not so concerned about the individual cases so much as looking at what kinds of institutions are put in place through these sorts of practices.
0: That's interesting, because for for me, that that Fremont Daguerreotype story, for example, and there are others, but to use this one, because we're on it, if if success is defined as as white America marching westward, yes, success. But what if part of the goal was, and and it was, to inform America about the West so it could make a decision about moving westward? And what if America had seen how dry and how harsh Western landscapes were? Would the decision-making have been different? And... I don't know. Maybe one shouldn't get too lost in unknowables like that, but I do wonder about it.
1: They certainly knew there was gold out there. So <laughs> well, once They got
0: all the way out there, yeah. Uh, and Fremont, of course, ended up running a gold mine in, 18, in Civil War, California. Related to some of these issues we're talking about, you have spoken at length repeatedly in the past about how truth and the audience trust is at the core of, of your work. That was also true of O'Sullivan and the survey photographers in the 19th century. It was important from kind of general humans, but even to courts of the period that wet plate collodion prints were made at a one to one ratio, which meant that they were which meant to audiences of the time that they, those pictures were perceived as being truthful because of that one to one negative to print relationship. Is there an analog in your work to that perceived veracity of the one to one relationship in 19th century prints?
1: My first instinct is to say no, like not at all, like in the sense like I really don't care about and and actively would resist the idea that there's any relationship whatsoever between an image and some ideology of objectivity or something like that. In other words, I think I would be very far on the other side of that. Having said that, when I talk about truth, I don't mean that in in a kind of capital T way in terms of what is actually in the image. I guess what I mean by that is having a commitment to looking and to going out and actually engaging with whatever that you're looking at in in a really deep way and trying to start with the assumption that the world is actually far stranger and more interesting than any imagination that you are going to have of it before you've done the work. You know? So I guess what I mean by that, on one hand, when I talk about establishing trust with a viewer, that trust is trying to cultivate a cultivate some consistency. Around the idea that an audience can trust me that I've done the work right? and that and that like in that I'm not just making this stuff up that this isn't a conspiracy or, or what have you and I think that on one hand and then on the on the second hand there's a that's a it's almost kind of like a methodological commitment you know uh, and it's something that I've really carried me with me for a long time, you know I think when, when I was a much Younger artist, I was starting to look at things that had new political or social significance, and thought to myself, if, if I'm going to use these kinds of materials and I'm going to wade into this water, the work that I'm doing should be as rigorous as as anybody, really. You know, it should somebody who is an expert in a particular field should be, should be able to look at my interpretation of it and say, yeah, that's right. Or that the work would be at a high enough level, we have a conversation about it and why I'm doing it in a particular way that I am. And so I guess that's like what I mean is that that I think that by spending the time and putting the effort into the research, the the bet that you're making. Because you're going to ha- ultimately end up with a much more complex and hopefully informative take on whatever it is that you're looking at.
0: And besides, if conspiracy theory nuts really want to go crazy on you, all they have to do is point to you're being born near Fort Meade, where the NSA is, and they can they can, they can can go from there. <laughs> sure. <laughs> Another big focus of your work, especially in recent years, has been been surveillance and the relationship between the state surveillance and power that's related to making the invisible visible so it's you know maybe it's like a 75 percent degree turn from that there is i think within post-war art a much richer art history around surveillance than there is around some of your other work you know going from say uh, bruce nauman and his studio forward for example right are there specific post-war art histories that you found useful in your thinking about surveillance?
1: I, I, th- I sometimes use the word surveillance as a shorthand just because it's there, but, it, but I really, personally, I don't understand what that word means in the sense that like when I think about surveillance, I just think about sensing, right? So what are sensing systems or sensing infrastructures that are, you know, whether installed in urban environments or on online or what have you? that are collecting information about people and doing some stuff with that, right? And so you can, that is Google just as much as it is an NSA and that is you know, your smart refrigerator just as much as it is you know, a surveillance camera, for example. So I think about surveillance as it is in this broader sense of sensing or autonomous sensing or instrument enabled sensing and what forms of seeing are produced through that and what are the possibilities and constraints of those forms of seeing and what forms of power are those attached to what kinds of institutions do they reproduce and reinvigorate at the expense of of, of which other ones What possibilities are made available which are which are foreclosed so I would just kind of preface it by saying that I think in terms of post-war art is kind of a lot, obviously. The most important artists for me would probably at the, at the, the basics would be somebody like a Hans Hacke, you know, and looking at this shift. And, and on, on what we can think of as both sides of his career, in other words, looking at the systems work as well as, you know, that, that shift that starts happening. When he, when he starts looking at you know real estate values and things like that and and kind of the developments of this institutional critique, on one hand, enormously influential on me is looking at that generation around ACT UP and feminism and queer liberation in this moment, kind of in the eighties and and early nineties that was about trying to reclaim images make images mean different things and and that kind of generation that thought really deeply about the relationship between cultural production and politics and, and applied politics if you will in a much more active way than you know people were thinking about art and politics in the in the early 20th century for example and so th- those would be the that the kind of background. I guess those are some of the most foundational things I've been looking at. But also you know, like a Martha Rossler, Jenny Holzer. I mean, these are unbelievably influential people to me.
0: We'll come back to Haka, especially in a little bit, his condensation cubes and such. So with, with some of that foundation having been laid, let's turn to some specific works. We mentioned Timothy O'Sullivan's Pyramid Lake picture and your, forgive the word, update of it. In your picture, there is uh, a porta potty You have uh, spoken in artist lectures for a number of years now about how Turner's 1844 painting Rain, Steam, and Speed, the Great Western Railway, which is at the National Gallery in London, how that painting is important to you. And it's a, a painting that represents or tries to the blurring speed of a train, which was then, of course, pretty darn new. And Turner includes in the picture quite... Clearly, um, even in reproduction, quite clearly, two people in a canoe in in the Thames, you know, just kind of holding still, moving slowly, gawking, stunned, all of those things, you know. So it's a representation of contemporary modernity as as the new thing arrives, and so I kind of forgive me for this. Think of the porta potty in the Pyramid Lake picture as kind of existing in that same way. Is it important to you to? find ways or use ways once you find them of pointing to you know the contemporary present in in your work that addresses the technological i don't know sublime is the wrong word but the technological intervention of state and power into the natural world
1: i'm i'm so glad we're talking about it that that's a joke that's in that image that nobody's ever brought up before and and it's actually really out of character for me. You know, and even when I was making the image, I was like, I want to do this thing. And it's like I would just, just really normally not do this, you know. And, and let's we'll see if it see if it flies, but nobody ever nobody ever got the joke. But yeah, so that that the yeah, the porta potty was just I'm I'm usually much more willing to kind of embrace the romantic, you know, and and you know, formally Really, a lot of the work is, you know, although I can say it's conceptually much more influenced by like the Hans Hake or kind of feminist work, a lot of times the formal strategies that I'm using are really, you know, 19th century, like really romantic even, you know. So with that piece in general, it, it is a pyramid lake. It has a reconnaissance satellite kind of moving through the sky. And the the porta potty in that piece is, is a little bit... It's a complication. It's kind of saying, you, uh, obviously, it's like uh, it's kind of crappy, though. <laughs> you know, like, like, to, to forgive the uh, the pun, in, in general, that that tends to not not be something that that I do. But in in general, the I mean, in general, the 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 trope is take something that you think you know that has obviously kind of formal references to other things in history and then there's a small intervention into that whether it's saying you know the sky and it has a drone in it or or, or what have you but it, but it, but it, but I'm trying to think like, there's usually not that sense of the ultra mundane in them except for in some of the cable landing images. I was I
0: was going to cite a couple of those in, in Point Arena in California and one of a beach where there are fishing boats and one of a beach in Long Island. And forgive me, I can't remember the place in Long Island.
1: Yeah. So with those ones, I mean, I ac- actually went in that direction precisely because there were there's actually no evidence whatsoever of the thing that I was trying to photograph in the image. So in in a way, when I was making those images, I thought these are actually probably the most abstract images that I've Ever made in the sense that there's no, you can spend all day looking at the print and you will not see the reason why I'm photographing that place. Right? It's not in, it's just isn't in the frame. And so I was trying to think about how do you how do you deal with that formally. And I guess then I just went to the everyday so, okay, like let's just make it kind of quotidian. Incidentally, in the I did another piece called. And everyday landscape, and I forget the rest of it. Something like sports flight, CIA, something. It was looking at CIA front companies that had been set up to control a fleet of airplanes that was then uh, or that were used to kidnap people and, and, and torture them. And that was really using this aesthetic language of of everyday life. I think even all the images I had a rule that they they had to be shot out of a window of a car, you know, and so so they had sort of tried to construct a a very banal aesthetic language
0: around them. It does kind of raise the question of of beauty in, in, in some of the pictures we're talking about. The cable pictures, the fiber optic cable landing site pictures are a really good example Those landscapes are often, you know, drop-dead gorgeous. Many of the pictures where you're looking at the sky are too, of course. To what level is that incidental? The cables are there. And to what extent is it accidental or a key strategy?
1: I don't think that there's ever such a thing as incidental. I mean, you are obviously choosing what conditions you're shooting under, what light you're shooting with, what is the color palette of... Film that you're using, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But referring back to the earlier point about, you know, what is this relationship between objectivity and photography, and you know, just it kind of one of my pet peeves is when people ask you, oh well, is that what it really looked like? And I'm like, what, what, what it really look like? But your eyes are highly relativistic in terms of how they experience color in the first hand, you know. So like there's there's no even your eyes don't have any kind of consistent correlation between. You know the frequency of photons that they're taking in, and what you're perceiving. But so in, and so the, there's. So I think the so first part of your answer is that there there's never a necessary correlation between an image that you make and and a, a place that you're making the image. you know, you're, you're, those are huge decisions that you're making very consciously. The secondly is that in terms of this question of beauty, to me that is a strategy. I want to make things that I enjoy. I want to make things that invite you in. You know, a lot of the times the ideas and the stories that go into the creation of the images are, are pretty complicated, and, and they can usually go pretty deep with an within audience down down a rabbit hole if they want to. And that's not necessarily within the frame, but writing or lectures or talking about it outside of that. And But I want to create a way in, kind of roll out a carpet and say, hey, let's walk into this world together and I think by making something that you can just enjoy visually in in the first place it kind of opens that up and I guess for me the other the other side of it is that there's no I don't have big opinions about like the ethics of beauty or this or that you know I I think it is beauty is not even really a thing (laughs) you know there's just what stuff looks like you know and you can try to give people a reason to look at something or not. You know? And there can be, again, when you're using formal strategies or deciding what something looks like, you are inevitably making references to other artworks throughout history. And so you're, you know, in a way, using that as a device to locate the image that you're making within a historical conversation that you think the image you're making is
0: relevant to. That's, that's interesting because i think the, the fairly recent piece that i think most explicitly uses beauty to play off of what the work is about is 89 landscapes from 2015 in which you show some really you know beautiful landscapes but what they what is what is only visible to the viewer upon you know reading the wall text or whatever is that those are within those those landscapes are choke points in the international telecommunication system and that seems almost as explicit a playing two things off of each other as maybe exists in your work.
1: Yeah, and and so the 89 Landscapes was originally all footage that was shot for Citizen Four, which was Laura Poitras' documentary of Ed Snowden, and so I just ended up with hundreds and hundreds of hours of 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 images that I shot for her and we just had a deal saying like whatever she didn't use that 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 I could use and so I put that all together and it's a it's a different yeah for me it was it's a film that's about looking at landscapes and not seeing really you know it's like what what is there's very few places in the in the film where you're seeing a piece of infrastructure where you know where you're seeing the the radome or the, the apparatus.
0: Sheep in a pastoral landscape seem to almost be more present, for example.
1: Exactly. And so for me, that's really about when we're thinking about institutions that are attached to states or surveillance or militaries or what have you, what are all the ways in which those are ubiquitous and yet you don't corporeally experience their presence.
0: I mentioned text and its relationship to to your work a moment ago. This is true in your titles, too. The pictures sometimes lean on the titles pretty good. So there's a picture such as Columbus 3 NSA slash GCHQ tapped undersea cable Atlantic Ocean 2015, in which we can see the cable. But there are also works such as—and forgive my reading a long title— Control Tower, Area 52, Tonopah, test range, Nevada, distance approximately 20 miles, 1155 AM 2006. There's a strategy here of putting a lot of information into the titles, and and I'm sure that's not accidental. I'm sure you you came to that as a decision. And, and how did you do that, and why that information in the titles? Why, why was that the information important to convey?
1: Well, if you look at those images, they're wildly impressionistic. I mean, they're shot from really great distances and so basically what the images is, is heat and haze and atmospheric undulations and it, it's it's pretty abstract I think of those photographs as being photographs of places but just as much as they're photographs of places they're photographs of visions collapsing or you know light falling apart just technically that's what's going on in them and so The titles are meant to set up a kind of juxtaposition and that kind of trying to insist on that extreme specificity of the conditions under which the image was made and where it's made. I'm trying to insist on a kind of presence in the title that the formal language of the image is running away from. All right, so I'm I'm trying to make a claim and then run away from that claim at the same time. And for me, setting up that tension between proposition and then questioning the proposition is characteristic of what I think a good or kind of successful Trevor Paglen image in in some cases, you know. Um, but it, it's a strategy they use a lot. You know, is just it's trying to set up that dialectic.
0: Conversely, a couple works in which the titles really aren't enormously revelatory are autonomy cube and trinity cube so before we talk about those a little bit could you quickly tell people what each of those i mean they're cubes but could you quickly tell people what each of those pieces is
1: so autonomy cube is a plexiglass bulletproof cube and on the inside of it is basically some motherboards and a router and when you install it you it sits on the Museum or galleries, in you know, internet backbone, and it does a couple of things. The first thing that it does is it creates a a Wi-Fi hotspot that anybody can use called Autonomy Cube, and it takes the traffic of of everybody connecting to that Wi-Fi hotspot and routes it over something called the Tor network, which is a volunteer-run network that's designed to anonymize internet traffic and anonymize the location of people on the network. So if you connect to Autonomy Cube and start surfing the internet, it will kind of encrypt your traffic through this Tor network and it will randomize where the normal internet thinks you are in the world. So you could connect from the Museum of Contemporary Art in Chicago, for example, and the internet, you might get an internet that's in Polish because Autonomy Cube has anonymized your location and Google thinks you're in Poland. And so that's one thing that it does. The second thing that it does is that is that it allows other people from around the world to connect to Autonomy Cube to anonymize their location. So in other words, for example, a person in Poland could connect through it to make the internet think that they are, you know, in Chicago or, or California or, or what have you. And so for me it's a it's a piece that's about imagining what the internet could look like if it were not the greatest tool of mass surveillance in the history of humankind, right? So like, it's just imagining what, what if the internet could not spy on you is like the kind of imaginative proposition of the piece.
0: Let me, let me stop you there before we do Trinity cube. Autonomy cube is almost, I mean, for me anyway, it's the piece in your oeuvre that is most, tied to a work in the contemporary canon, both Hans Hocker's work in general and his interest in systems and making them visible and often uncomfortable, but also his um, condensation cubes, which contain uh, an entire system, in this case evaporation and condensation and such, and, and, and make it visible. Your autonomy cube is transparent. You can see into it and through it. It didn't have to be, of course. That's that's a decision. Is, is that a specific Hockian uh, reference and hat tip?
1: Yeah, that was that was very specifically a hockey reference. Like if you're doing cubes, you know, there's a whole history of people doing cubes, and so you you pick which one you're gonna go with. And and again, that 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 moment in Hocke is really important to me. That way in which, particularly in you know, late 60s, early 70s, is is starting to think about the relationships between systems and politics, you know, and and how those relationships can congeal in places like a museum, for example. So for me, the question was, what sort of space should or could a museum be, right? What, what kinds of ethics should I have? And to what extent can those ethics be embodied in the actual infrastructure itself? And so this is a very classic kind of institutional critique question, and I'm just trying to shift it a little bit further you know, even into, you know, like what is the politics of the fiber optic network that the that the museum is sitting on and can you change the protocols of that network to have a different ethical paradigm, for example?
0: Trinity Cube is the same but different. It's about an eight inch cube made of glass taken from the exclusion zone around where a Japanese nuclear plant I don't know if failed is the technical term but it's close after uh tsunami in 2011 in 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 the catalog I think it's Luke Skrabowski who who makes the analogy uh you know who who aligns it with Larry Bell which I mean I get it but for me I I think of Robert Morris's box with the sound of its own making in in that the thing I mean I think this is probably true of autonomy cube too but but that the object reveals within itself how it was made I don't typically, I mean, you know, we've, we've been talking about kind of systems oriented artists, but I guess I wonder if that Morris was important to you. For sure.
1: So, the, and thinking about that, and Autonomy Cube is a little bit like this too. That's, I mean, the joke is, I mean, the, the word autonomy is, is a joke, and that what some people don't get and get really mad at me about. But anyway, but but yeah, so for me, the, the Trinity Cube, so it, it is made out of glass from the nuclear disaster in Fukushima, but the core of it, is actually made out of glass from New Mexico, glass called Trinitite, which was when they set off the first nuclear weapon in uh, 1945.
0: Atomic weapon, but yeah.
1: It was so hot that it turned the surface of the desert in New Mexico into a kind of glass that's mildly radioactive, and, and that, that glass is called Trinitite. And so the, the core of that Trinity cube is made out of this Trinitite, and then the kind of surrounding part of it is made out of this glass from. And nuclear disaster there in 2011 and for me that piece is thinking about obviously like how materials are histories right that like that like, literally that material is that history right so is is something like trinitite that's not a naturally occurring mineral as it were you know and and then thinking about how that persists over time right so you Take these materials that have, that are the products of very specific moments in histories, and are linked to each other, and then you almost set them off into, you know, as if they were, you know, ships on, on onto a, the seas of time or something like that. And the other part of the Trinity Cube piece is that it was installed back in the exclusion zone in Fukushima as a public art piece that nobody can go see and 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 we don't know when we'll go see it it will become open to the public when the exclusion zone itself becomes open to the public and that could be in three months or three years or 30,000 years nobody knows and so for me that piece is actually kind of again related to another piece I did in 2012 called the last pictures which is a, a a body of pictures that are just they're now in Orbit around the Earth and at, a, at really far away about thirty six thousand kilometers, and they just kind of orbit around the Earth and will stay there for potentially billions of years and so I was thinking about in in those pieces what happens when you remove images from history right? and so you know again i'm I have a constant obsession about what are the possibilities and And limitations uh, of images and and how do they function in in any possible way I can kind of think of. And so in in both of those pieces, those are both really about cave paintings for me. And thinking about what happens when you have some kind of evidence that obviously has a very particular history and almost wants to tell a specific story, or at least we imagine it wanting to tell a specific story but that it's been completely detached from the circumstances that it came from, you know, what is left. And to to me, that's a kind of temporal analogy to the long-distance photos, you know, in terms of trying to take a photo of something, you know, 40, 50 miles away, and you get this extreme blurry kind of almost mirage-like image. What if you, instead of looking at a spatial axis, you look on a temporal axis and say, what is an image that is 10,000 years away in time, for example?
0: You know one of the things that we've been talking around without talking about directly is the way in which you choose to show your work the labor that goes into making a piece and 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 how sometimes you don't and I think one of the best interviews with you that's out there is a twenty fifteen interview you did with Dylan Kerr that was published in art space, and he asked you about the research and physical components of what you do, whether it's you know hiking on shenandoah mountain in 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 Virginia, I think. Scuba diving, or 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 whatever else, and how and and how that labor, that that personal labor of yours, that physical labor, is important. And in a different question in that interview, Kerr asked you about how it is that you don't show or share that effort with the audience. And I'm not criticizing that at all, but that's it, that's that's a pretty common conceptual strategy from the 1970s on for the artist to let the audience in on the labor and why the labor is important and how the labor resulted in the piece. And I'm curious as to why you mostly choose not to show your work in that regard. You're, you're using and mining conceptualist strategies, but leaving that part of what early conceptualists did out.
1: I think that a lot of the things I'm trying to do is distilling things. I'm kind of thinking about like, what is the bare minimum that I need to say to get the point across and then and, and then not add anything to that. Particularly if I'm making you know artworks that are gonna be in institutions or in public spaces or what have you. It, particularly if I'm making a piece that somebody is gonna approach from the place of wanting to see an artwork. I think I do show the labor in lectures, you know, in, in talks and in in some of the writing you know so I think for me when I think about the broader practice of of the the overall the overall the meta work if you will there's the writing there's the lecturing there's the exhibitions there's all different ways in and I hope that that each of them provides a, a unique pathway into the work that shows you something different but then also leads to the others. And so I, don't, so I don't expect an exhibition to be able to do all the work that I want to do. I don't think a lecture can. I don't think that writing can either. But I try to really capitalize on what those forms are, are good at. You know, Lectures are really good at telling stories. And, and we went here, and then this happened. This happened to you. That's fantastic. You know, a, a, an article is a great way to make an argument. Say like, I, this is what I'm looking at, and this is why I think it's important. This is how I'm thinking about it. I an mean, exhibition can't do that. And and on the other way, an in, in exhibition can say, oh, this is, this is a, a way of seeing. And, and that's really hard to show in, in writing, for example. So I guess that's why.
0: And finally, one of the paradoxes in your work is that state systems, the systems in which the most power is often concentrated in our contemporary world, are intensely interested in images, in understanding them and what they can do with them through algorithms, artificial intelligence, etc., The art world, now more than certainly any time in my lifetime, and and probably going back a lot farther than that, is increasingly dominated by its commercial sphere, by the salability of images rather than the understanding of images. This is also a time in American history where we've seen the humanities and especially art education bled out of American public schools. Do you think of there being a part of your Broad project that raises a kind of eyebrow at those dichotomies, the state's interested images at the time, at the same time the rest of us are being told to pay less attention to them?
1: This is a really, really great point. And this is actually the central thing that I'm working on now as a research fellow at an institute called AI Now at, at NYU. And, and that's exactly the, the question, which is that. When we're looking at systems, whether it are whether, – whether they're state surveillance systems or like reconnaissance outlets for that matter, but also increasingly in the world of like machine learning and artificial intelligence, these are systems that have to ingest millions or billions of images in order to function. And, and images are really – some of the – images and labels are the, are the raw material that, uh, that, that drives a lot of artificial intelligence in particular. So when we're looking at artificial intelligence systems or machine learning systems or, or global sensing systems in general, they function in large part by ingesting vast data sets of images and and doing stuff with them, doing statistical analyses of them and These are done by people with a, you know backgrounds in computer science or, or engineering that honestly to put it politely have not even a rudimentary understanding of, you know, the, of the the metaphysical complexities of of images, you know, and so what, what you what you end up with is a system that has all sorts of really bad, both intellectually as well as politically assumptions built into it, and, and we can explore that a little bit more if you want. But but yeah, the, the irony is certainly lost, not lost on me. And I think that this ultimately matters because when you interpret images, you are making a claim about how the world works. And when you make a claim about what images mean or about what they represent, you're also... Making a claim about who gets to re- be represented and how right and who gets to do the interpretation and what kinds of interpretations are possible so I mean classic examples like the the rocky King videos probably the most canonical example of this which is like who gets to interpret that image who gets to decide what it means and whose interests are served by those interpretations right and so this is happening at a much much vast or scale at this point with very serious consequences
0: a number of your pictures that take algorithms and use ai and apply them to human faces you know really uh, make a very specific 21st century argument for portraiture
1: or, or a specific late 19th century argument for phrenology.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, I thought of the, the French photographers who, I mean, you know, there's kind of a technological analog to the French photographers who applied electro stimulation to faces in an effort to try to encyclopedically chronicle emotions. You know, kind of a certain Armand Duchesne de Bologna and um, Adrien Tournachon faith in technology that also reveals a certain problematic potential cruelty (laughs)
1: exactly and this i mean and those analogies are dead on i mean that's you know in a way that's exactly what's going on and and not and that's not even an exaggeration it's just like literally the same exact stuff
0: trevor paglin thanks very much
1: hey thank you so much for having me it was great to be on your show
0: In John Waters' Indecent Exposure, the trash auteur behind Pink Flamingos and Hairspray shares 25 years of his visual art. The blockbuster retrospective features more than 160 provocative and wickedly funny works born from Waters' personal obsessions with celebrity, crime, and lowbrow culture. Don't miss your last chance to catch this exhibition at its second and final stop, the Wexner Center for the Arts at The Ohio State University. It's on view through April 28th, alongside the photography survey Peter Hujar, Speed of Life and a new site-specific mural by Bay Area artist Alicia McCarthy. For more information, go to wexarts.org. The Nasher Sculpture Center, presenting Sterling Ruby Sculpture through April 21st. Experience nearly 30 sculptures that include monumental works from poured urethane to ceramic collages weighing hundreds of pounds, to soft sculptures incorporating inexpensive fabrics dyed in Ruby's studio. This range of media straddles the line between high and low, fine art and craft, luxury goods, and common necessities. Learn more about how to visit Sterling Ruby Sculpture at the Nasher Sculpture Center at nashersculpturecenter.org. Welcome back. Next up, Kimball Art Museum curator Nancy Edwards. She joins me to discuss The Lure of Dresden, Belotto at the Court of Saxony. Bernardo Beloto was the court painter in Dresden from roughly 1748 to 58. Before then, he was a studio hand in Canaletto's studio in Venice. The exhibition is on view in Fort Worth through April 28th. Nancy Edwards, welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. Thank you. Let's start by trying to situate listeners in the time and place about which we're talking. Let's start with Beloto. He comes to prominence in Dresden, but he's not from there. So where did he come from, and how does he end up becoming a painter?
2: Well, he's from... Venice he's the nephew of the very famous view painter Canaletto and so he he gets his start there in the workshop of his uncle joins it about age 13 or so then like a lot of artists he also you know after spending time in the workshop begins to travel and he goes to Rome everyone goes to Rome in the 18th century he, he helps his uncle, sometimes his paintings are mistaken from him, but then he, be, he begins to go out on his own and get some important commissions in the north of, uh, of Italy and begins to earn a reputation for himself. Just how he got invited to the court of Dresden, we're not entirely sure, but it seems to have come from August the 3rd himself, who had... Certainly knew his his uncle, perhaps knew Bellotto um, through other connections and by his reputation.
0: So the catalog for this show is 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 small, but chock full of information, both about Bellotto and and about the works and 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 conserving them. I mean, it's a really strong little book. I I had no idea and was amazed to find out that while he was in Canaletto's studio, Bellotto is making business trips to Florence and to Rome. I was not previously familiar with the idea that that studio artists would you know that artists with studios would allow their underlings to to make such trips and 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 to make work as a result of them. How common is that? Is that does that tell us something about Boloto and his precociousness or what should we make of that?
2: He was precocious and he had tr- he had talent so that that would put him in line for you know great things ambition i think what what's fascinating about the 18th century because we know travel was not easy but people really got around and artists got around and they were they were in they were invited to other places, so whether they decided themselves that they would go, people went to Rome and to Florence to see the great art, you know, that was the standard to which you set, or you might go out and, and, and seek patrons, you might be invited. So what, what you'll find with with Belotto already, uh, he was invited to Dresden, but before, for him, there were other artists, particularly Venetians, uh, at the court of Dresden, because when the electors of Saxony wanted to create this great capital and impress everyone else, they had as models, particularly Venice, because it was such a glorious city and the artists were so wonderful. So there were, in addition to to artists, there were also musicians and uh they also sort of raided France. If you went on the Grand Tour, you went to Versailles, and you knew how glorious that was. So uh, August Third's father uh, had invited some French artists as well. So it was really inter- international. We had a wonderful exhibition on Casanova, who traveled all over, and in fact his mother was part of an Italian theatrical group who who was the court of Dresden. And his brother ended up training and being an artist uh, at the court of Dresden. So lots lots of Italians, lots of Venetians
0: so when as I understand it, when Bellotto is is making those those, you know, business trips, if you will, to Florence and Rome, he's still consciously, intentionally. Painting in Canaletto's style. How and when does Bellotto begin to break from his uncle's style and emerge into his own self?
2: Good question. Because I think he he takes the great lessons that his uncle had. You know how to how to um, be able to really create a very realistic, detailed image of a city. Something something that looked real. So by uh, mastering perspective and using all those optical tools making it come alive through light he's he's extremely adept at it. it creates mood and creates perspective as well he creates his light and part of this may be because he, he moved to these more northern climes where the light is different but he has a, a cooler light and something that I think characterizes his work and makes it strong. And some of it comes out of the commission itself. When he went to Dresden to create basically portraits of the city, they were large scale. So we're talking works that are over eight feet long, four feet tall. And that lends him a certain character, a certain monumentality. And you have to deal with with scale on a large scale and on a small scale. So he he takes that, and then he also takes what the commission was, is to portray it in a, a generous light. I mean, this was to be a golden age. It was made to impress, and so what the electric kings wanted to show was how rich and prosperous and productive Dresden and its territories were. And, he, and, and, and that, he really hits it out of the ballpark, creating views that are so appealing, are so charming, are so strong and, and, and diverse.
0: So he gets to Dresden in 1747, and he is almost immediately or immediately named the court painter there. Sometimes when we think of court painters we think of lots of portraits. That's not what Boloto is making. What what is he painting in and for the court and why were those views relevant to important to the court?
2: First there were there were great building projects going on in in, in Dresden. They had just completed the Protestant church the Frauenkirche again sort of modeled after Italian architecture to create this this skyline, you know, very beautiful buildings. Also, the Hofkirche, which was the court church, the Catholic church, because the Elector Kings had converted to Catholicism. Augustus Bridge, it's huge. They renovated this beautiful 17 arch bridge over the Elba. and so the setting of Dresden itself. In other words, they're creating something like Venice, like Florence, like Paris with the Seine and so on, that has a beautiful skyline and shows how rich and prosperous Dresden could be. But in addition to that, so you you have this architecture which they would commission by it. The electors were also creating or rather collecting artwork well, Belotos, they commissioned contemporary works as well. So these are works of art unto themselves. So the way that that a ruler, a sovereign, is going to show that they're important is through their wealth and their artwork, what they can can acquire, including showing some of the buildings where the artwork would be housed. So one of the Very beautiful paintings in this series is of the Zwinger. The Zwinger was first created, it's complex, a building complex, beautiful, very ornate Baroque architecture. It was first sort of a stage set for weddings and celebrations. In order to impress other European courts, you would invite them to your wedding, which might, you know, those festivities would last for. A month or two to carnival, so that's there was uh, near the royal residence, and then it, Augustus the Strong had this idea that it would be a what he called a "play des sciences." You know, it was would be where you would. This is the age of the Enlightenment. You would have the sciences. So uh, zoological specimens, mathematical instruments, and so on, as well as your porcelain collection and uh, your Kunstkammer, those precious objects, jewels, things like that, that you commissioned.
0: Yeah, The Swinger is a moat, Yeah, it features prominently in, in one of the paintings in the show. We'll have it on manpodcast.com. It's one of uh, only a handful of paintings in the show in which we don't see building in the foreground. We don't see brick or marble being cut up or, 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 or what have you. It almost seems like Beloto's brief in, in Dresden was to present the place as as a city on the come up, as a city that was that was, you know, growing in ways it could barely handle.
2: Yeah, the, the painting that you're talking about is one of my favorites, one of the Spinger Moat, because it's such an unusual view. You come in sort of through the water, and if you're looking at the figures, there's someone feeding the swans. And so he's presented what what you're seeing is the edge, the embankment of the old military, the ramparts. But he's he's not emphasizing as a military place, but a place that that is very appealing. There are people strolling in the gardens. You can almost sort of smell it and, and it's very calm and harmonious. And that's what, what the monarchs seem to have wanted to convey, that they have a rich and
0: prosperous rule. How long does Beloto spend in, in Dresden and why does he leave?
2: So he comes in 47, and in, in 1756, Prussia invades Saxony. Uh, so Frederick the the, the Great, there, there are endless wars, you know, one after the other during this period, as they're jockeying for, for land and land passages and so on. And so Dresden is taken, uh, they take the city back again, and August the third leaves, and eventually Bloto leaves too. And then in 1760, Prussia bombards Dresden, and it's it's really horrible. They one of the churches is, is burns, and with it, 400 some houses, including Bloto's own. And when he comes back several years later, he's found that he, he in the meantime become immensely wealthy. There's an inventory that was found recently that shows he had his own paintings collection and uh, he had a huge library. Who was learned? He had a thousand books. He had all this printing equipment. So he lost all of that. And shortly thereafter, the king dies and the prime minister dies. The king's son dies. So he has no, no patrons. In the meantime, he'd gone to some other courts and when he tries to get his bearing. In Dresden, again, it's it's really very very sad. There's an academy, and he's a little bit out of taste in the period. So he gets a a job as a teacher of perspective and And he stays for several more years in Dresden before he moves on. and he thinks he'll go to Russia because he's heard that Catherine the Great is hiring artists, but he stops in Poland along the way and and then becomes. Court painter to the new king of Poland, the electors of Saxony are no longer the the uh, monarchs of Poland. So he starts the next phase of his career.
0: Yeah, he was he was a traveling man. Kind of a, in in the later years in Dresden, he makes a number of of la- urban landscape or suburban landscape paintings. Of the, I guess you would call them the towns around Dresden. I guess they're not quite suburbs, but sort of. So why would those, why would paintings of towns like Pirna have been of interest to his, 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 his courtier pals in Dresden?
2: Those are beautiful paintings. They sort of show another side. This more, uh, several of them bucolic, uh, restful, peaceful. I think he's trying to show the extent of his territory, and Pirna represents, it. it's this wonderful setting where uh, there's a a fortress, Sonnenstein Castle, at the top of a hill, and one of the views shows uh, from across the Alba, so you you see the Alba, and you see the boats, and and, um, you see these blocks of sandstone that I think you referred to before. This region, Saxony was was uh, prosperous because they had so many minerals, meaning iron and copper and silver, but also sandstone that was used to build uh, all, all these works. And also vineyards. So he shows people working the vineyards in these views and he shows sort of the, the shepherds and the cows and so on. So it's showing the extent of his reign. In fact, in several of both in Dre- the, one of the Dresden views and, and the Pirna views, you see these land markers or milestones. They're in the shape of an obelisk. And some of them are, are dated. And the one for Pirna says Pirna. So that was part of a survey so that you could show the extent of the land. It was basically the postal routes. So it's the whole... Of the sovereign reign, in a way, and I think they would have complemented. Often, these views were done in in pairs, where you might see sort of city life and then country life, and it's this whole idea of of good government, you know, not just in in the city but in the the territory too, where they derived a lot of their wealth.
0: You mentioned the the blocks of sandstone. Um, one of the paintings in the show pierna from the posta hills shows the town on the left hand side of the canvas and uh, on the foreground on the right and in shadow it shows what kind of looks like a former quarry that has been converted into vineyards and the detail is really detailed how unusual was beloto's interest in in this kind of intense detailing and how did it distinguish or maybe not distinguish him from from his mid-18th century peers i think
2: Think that you know th- these these small details. You find them in other view paintings, and sometimes they call them staffage, And you get the idea from that that they're 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 sort, sort of conventional. Mm-hmm. They're contrived. They're there for the sake of scale or something. But Blotto's these little details are glorious. They're some of the favorite parts. Uh, a lot of us are taking using our phones and getting these close views because they are you can see what a great painter he is and, and how quickly he could do these. I, I love the way he uses light throughout the work. So he uses often a morning light, an evening light. He intensifies it. their are long shadows. But for the figures, often you'll see just a stroke of white, and it'll be on the back of a white shirt or on the front of a stocking. or, or And he able to capture kind of the body language of someone and often they're gesturing they may be relaxing they're varied they're really fun it's almost like um i think about Beloto's paintings as being almost more cinegraphic uh where you've got to zoom you know you're looking at the whole thing and then you want to keep zooming in to look at these details that have so much information Not just the figures, but also something like the wall, moss growing on the wall, or the color on the stone as it varies. And there are these endless details that are sort of the joy of painting. And I I think he's just better at that than almost anyone else.
0: You mentioned the light in his paintings. There's also, you know, this is a Venice thing, of course, but he also, you sense humidity in the paintings. You know, these are all river towns you sense that the river is present in the air in a, in a, in a really marvelous way. So what kind of shape are, are these paintings in today? Are they, how, how, how do we see them compared to how we think perhaps they might have been seen a couple hundred years ago?
2: There's a really interesting essay in the in the catalog by the uh, conservator who has been working and studying these paintings. And one of the things she remarks about is is the history of these works are so interesting because they were delivered as they were completed to to the king, but they weren't displayed and presumably the room wasn't ready yet they were waiting for this whole cycle, and then this terrible seven years war uh, happened, so they were put into storage about seventy years or so before they were were finally put on view and the meantime they suffered a bit you know that said for something that's this long they are in in, in good shape but anything this old you know the uh, colors colors change there's some interventions they're varnish that can yellow so some of the paintings have been conserved there are a lot of them and they take a long time
0: they're huge <laughs> they're really huge
2: <laughs> like a year <laughs> So they can't do them all. I mean, that, that, that you know, it can be a life's work, but they also study them really carefully to try to figure out how he painted them, because that in itself is really fascinating to think how you could make something this meticulous.
0: Such as whether he'd used a camera obscura and how carefully he'd planned out the canvases before, you know, actually picking up a brush. and. The 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 essay on conservation in the catalog is by Sabine Benfelt, and boy did I learn a lot and have fun doing it. Finally, just for fun, what's your favorite painting in the show and why? Ooh, that's
2: a that's a hard one because I've got a lot of them. I I like the I've talked about the details. I, I talked about the one with the moat. That's one of my favorites. There's a pair that shows uh, the cityscape is the Hofkirche being constructed. And there are people out in the square, and you see some figures bowing. And I like the way he captures the figures from behind. There's sort of family in European dress with a child doffing his hat. And then there are a pair of Polish men doing the same. And there's a carriage, and when you look really closely, it's the king inside. You know, he's not wearing a crown or anything, but it's just this tiny little detail where he's captured. And then... Before it, you see these horses that are going towards the bridge and a white horse galloping on the bridge and figures relaxing on the bridge. And it, it just gives you this great slice of life. And it's paired with another that shows the banks of the river and country folk who are relaxing and hanging out the laundry. And uh, uh, like you, you said, you can smell it. They're so atmospheric you 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 feel like you could be there or you want to be there,
0: yeah, you can see they've diverted a bit of uh the river to do in which to do their laundry, which is which is a fun little detail, and in the picture of the church under construction, the figures that are bowing are right on the edge between shadow and and sunlit ground. So it's almost the first place you, I mean, I, I, th- I think the eye probably goes to the river first, but it's almost the first place the eye goes is that, that line between sun and shadow and then the narrative of the painting unfolds, which is all kinds of fun. We'll have them both on, uh, on manpodcast.com. Nancy Edwards, thanks so much. You're very welcome. That's all for this week's show. The Modern Art Notes podcast is edited by Wilson Butterworth.